Joining me for today's wrap session is founder and CEO Kai Frazier, queen, boss, visionary, and candy corn lover. Ugh. Oh, you're yucking my yum. What are you doing? <laughs> I get to throw some candy corn shade because Kai is also my sister queen and I'm just truly honored to have her on Tech Rap Queen. She is going to candidly share her incredible journey from seventh and eighth grade history teacher to becoming a founder of her own VR company where she is now bringing history to students. Just truly uh, an inspiration to so many like myself. This is a two-part rap session, friends, because you are going to be just so full after this amazing rap queen experience. Royal Courts, get ready for these gems. Energy, vibes, inspiration. I'm Renee Reed, and this is Tech rap queen. Before we jump into all the things, all the things Kai, all the things, your startup, your business and who you are, I first want to just ask, how are you finding joy during these times and these unprecedented times that we're in? You know, I don't think the ways I find joy are any different. Um, I think I've always prioritized having a peace and a stillness just to survive stuff. So a lot of my joy has not changed. Uh, one mm. of the things that brings me the most joy is walking beautiful Lake Merritt in Oakland and just being there and relaxing and just being still. Um, I've been doing a lot more reading. Um, and, you know, I, I enjoy being still. I, for me, I've had such a tumultuous, chaotic life growing up that I find so much peace in knowing to be okay, all you have to do is be still. And I've never had that type of certainty ever in my life. So I find joy in the fact that I can just be still and get some much needed rest um, and do my part. And that makes things better. I love that. Finding joy and being still. Come on, gems already. <laughs> um, and that's so important. And, and I want to talk about that really quick and the, the essence of joy and how it's different than happiness, right? Like happiness can be flighting, it can come and go, but there's something grounding about joy that in the midst of chaos and unprecedented times, it's there. Um, again, things may not be going right and things may not be going well, but you can still have joy. Joy is a very new feeling for me since moving to California. I didn't know things like joy existed. Um, and now that I've been in California and just being around so many people in the Bay Area that prioritize their well-being, um, you know, their true selves, uh, it really brings them joy. Uh, it's contagious. Um, so it's been really nice just to find my tribe uh, and be more whole due to it. Grew up in Chicago, from Chicago originally? Yeah, I grew up a little while. I was born in Atlanta. Uh, my whole family's in Chicago, so I lived in Chicago for a little bit. And then my mother joined the military in Virginia, and that put me in the Tidewater area 
uh, of Virginia. I grew up in Chesapeake, Virginia. Nice. Now I'm, I'm going to take a moment of privilege here. <laughs> Being a New Yorker myself and you spent time in Chicago, it's only right that I ask you the million dollar question. Are you going deep dish on me? You're going to say that. I'm Are you going- any day of the week. Bakery's deep dish of the day. I'm like, where's the best deep dish in Oakland? I got to find it. So I actually just came back from Chicago. And when I got back, the first thing I did was order deep dish pizza. So Wow. Wow. I am a Chicago I- person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that you are repping uh, your home and your spot. I'm... Uh, going to <clears throat> respectively uh, just let you know <laughs> that New York slice pizza, hands down, is the best. If you're not folding your slice, you are not eating pizza, friends, okay? Unless you're eating a Sicilian corner slice, that's another story. <laughs> but um, I love that we can disagree on pizza. I still also, love I you. Like both, both bring me joy. There you go. Both bring me joy. There you go. You know what? That's a good point. It doesn't have to be either or. It doesn't have to be one against the other. (laughs) You can enjoy them both. (laughs) I don't enjoy them both. I enjoy New York. (laughs) 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 We just go keep it real. Uh, (laughs) uh, So yeah. So so take us on the journey, Kai, uh, from DC. Uh, You're in DC. Uh, you're working at a museum. Um, walk us through the journey from that to where you are today, running, owning your startup, your own company. Uh, this is just an amazing story. So let's start in D.C. Uh, yeah. So I lived in D.C. for right under 10 years, D.C. in the D.C. area. Um, and, you know, taught for a long time in that area. I was a history teacher. Uh, and just really wanted to work in a history museum and just get some more experience. Um, I'm just a big history nerd. Um, so it took me a long time. If museums are notoriously hard to get into, they're even harder if you are uh, not white. Um, so it took me about five years to get into a museum. And my goal was to be on the National Mall when the uh, Smithsonian National Museum of African American and History and Culture, aka the Blacksonian. I yes. was on the National Mall when it opened, and that was like that was my dream. Like I can just, I just want to be present for history. Um, so it took me five years um, applying to get into a museum, and I finally. Um, uh, start working at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And I was always like, man, why can't I be at the African-American Museum? And then, you know, God makes no mistakes. Um, no mistakes. So I had I got to be in a museum where I my job was um, would eventually be just documenting stories of these amazing survivors. So Holocaust survivors, Rwandan survivors, uh, ISIS survivors, Syrian survivors, Cambodian survivors. If they were alive, I was talking to them about their story and how to tell their story in a way that could be consumed in an educational setting. Um, and I mean, they took me through all of it. I've, I mean, it was the biggest lesson and perspective I've ever had in my life. Um, and I don't think I would have started my company if I wasn't at that museum. Mm. Your story is the perfect example of not getting what you want, uh, but getting what you need. And of course, looking back in hindsight, now you really understand why you did need to work uh, at the Holocaust Museum. But eventually you do get to uh, work at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Uh, if, if 
Royal Court, if you have not been, uh, of course, when it's safe to uh, do these things again, um, it is a must and should be on your list. It is an experience. So, and I know for you, uh, Kai, that, that had to have been a dream come true. My dream was to just be on the National Mall when the museum opened, uh, and that was it. And I would have never in a million years think I would be the portal to have the digital audience view the museum. So I was able to just do a lot of behind-the-scenes reporting um, for smartphones, uh, Snapchat, Instagram stories when it first came out, uh, and just taking people behind the scenes to talk to their favorite people from African-American history and culture. So I got to, you know, do shots with like Oprah and Kobe and John Lewis and uh, Ava, just anybody you can imagine. Um, we just got to comment. That was a wonderful interview. Just, just you know, just anybody you can think of. It was the epitome of just all things Black and um, you know, it, it also just showed me like how much I didn't know how to dream. I feel like you have to be, a, you have to be able to afford the, the right to dream sometimes. So like if you're focusing on like survival, um, you're not usually thinking about like how, you know, dreaming big. So I just, like I said, it, it, it made me reflect a lot how my dream was to be on the mall. And I never for once thought I could be at the museum, front row seat, doing all these things, uh, and just how much I traditionally sold myself short. I worked at the two museums that specialize in stories of adversity and perseverance and tenacity and all these things. So I constantly was surrounded by people that uh, time over time overcame the odds to influence history and make global change. And that was just my regular day. Um, so I enjoyed and appreciated every single opportunity, every conversation. Um, and just, you know, it was an overwhelming um, exercise in perspective. Um, and I probably, I know the, one of the main reasons why I started my, or had the like, just thought about starting a company is I worked with a Syrian survivor named Omar. And I was producing a story talking about him leaving Damascus and leaving his whole family behind where he was a computer engineer and having to find refuge in Berlin. And I sat him down with a Holocaust survivor who was in Berlin during the Holocaust and had to flee Berlin uh, and went to Northern Africa and was um, found refuge of a Muslim family. So basically how one person could find a refuge there uh, and how one had to leave uh, for, you know, to save their life and sitting them down and just talking about it. Uh, and Omar said he used to always say that, um, you know, even through all of this, he was still building, even though he lost everything and didn't know his family, he was still building. And he had built an app um, that help people understand the immigration policy if they spoke Arabic and not German. Uh, so just really help them, you know, even through all that, he was still making change. Uh, and still working. And I just, I was like, okay, well, I don't have money to start a company, but I have assets, you know, like, so what if I could liquidate those assets and I'm still starting leaps and bounds ahead of him. You know, I had one of my Rwandan survivors, Claire, she would always tell me that after the Rwandan genocide, she traveled through nine different countries providing for her and her, her sister and her kids. Um, and the only thing that she ever prayed for was a seed. Because if she had a seed, she could grow for herself so she could feed them. She could make a market. She could barter. So like her only prayer was a seed. So I'm always yeah. thinking like, okay, well, 
maybe I, you know, I know that zero point zero 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 six percent of black women don't get funding for their companies, but you know, I can probably get a, you know, I can probably do a lot of a dollar. She's just trying to get a seed, you know, like what, what could I do? Um, so they just every day, just I was taught the importance of taking risk, and even when it all looks grim, you can still. Um, you know, make a huge difference and make a change for some people. And, and it can be, you know, a ripple effect. So I'm very, so when I was thinking why the Holocaust Museum, I'm, I'm pretty sure that there was no other museum I was supposed to be at. You've become a great storyteller. You were able to bring people together, uh, to tell their stories, what was the pivotal moment for you in deciding, I want to do this, I want to create and be an entrepreneur and own my own company and do a startup? You know, I never wanted to start, never wanted a company, don't know the first thing about running a company. Uh, I'm like anything God but running a company. That's real. Yeah, I just can't tell you how this, I am shocked every day. I'm like, what in the world is happening? Um, mm. But um, my when I worked in education, I really enjoy working with kids. Uh, and when I worked in a more corporate setting, I was always in trouble. Um, and I didn't understand why I was always getting in trouble. For example, I taught middle school. I taught eighth grade. So these are like kids that are like 12 going to 13. They're top of the school. They're going through puberty. They want. They think they're like the big kid on campus. Now they're eighth grade at, at eight through six. So it's like a transformation of them between seventh and eighth grade. And they turn into little devils. Like I don't know who they are. That's my everyday teaching. Um, but because of that, and they're like turning into little adults and they're at that pivotal moment, it's, it is essential that I talk to them very directly and I don't sugarcoat anything. So, you know, if they're having an issue, I was, you know, they're like trying to like, you know, break hard and like swell up in class. I'm like, you know, what's the issue here? Do you need to step out? If you got to step out, just go ahead and step out. We can take a moment, but that's, you know, like, but if if, if you take that moment, I'm not going to hold anything against you. Just take the moment and do it. And the kids would always do it. They would come back. They could tell, they would tell me something, something bad's happening, but you had direct conversations um, with, I had to find out the hard way in corporate America. They don't do that. Nobody, you know, and it takes love to talk to somebody like that. And to, and to, you have to really care about them. So I have been practicing my whole career, uh, like a, this love ethic of like just directly talking to my students and being firm. Most of them are taller than me. You know, they're like, they're like, so it's like, all oh, I had to like stand my ground and like make sure they're becoming good adults. Um, so when I got into corporate, it was nothing but bad adults who never had good teachers and they would just talk to people any type of way. Everybody was sugarcoating stuff. Nobody wanted to manage everybody. And if I said anything that sounded like right, I was always in trouble and I couldn't understand the politics fast enough. So I was always in trouble and I was like, I know I'm not crazy. Like, I know I'm not a bad worker, but why am I in trouble for saying the right thing? Come on, <laughs> come on, bad adults. Right. They didn't have good teachers. I'm training kids to say right every single day. That's how we talk to each other. That's how we, that's how we respect each other. Right. I'm getting into work and you, you try to, the only way for me to succeed is to go against my better morals and to like not speak when something is blatantly wrong or we could be doing something better. 
we can't even have a conversation about it. It's, it's always the, well, we've always done it like this type of mentality. Or like, and, I, and I had to, I remember, I will not name any work names, but I remember I realized, you know, being a black woman in a corporate society where your voice does not carry at all, um, that the only way I could get in, the way I got into less trouble is to just speak through pure data. They, you can't, you know, you can be mad at me all you want. You can't be mad at the data. If I'm just a messenger of the data, then I learned how to really, so it was like storytelling of data. And I got really good at that. Um, and that made people, so now it made people uncomfortable that I was smart. So it was like, okay, well, I can't think this way. When I try to do it the right way, I'm now, I'm intimidating, you know, or people, like people don't want to work. You know, it's just, it's always something. And I'm like, I thought we were working together for the better good of whatever thing we're doing. Right. And because, you know, so it just I was always in trouble and I was finding that I had been working my whole like education career, teaching, helping kids to find their voice. And literally I was in a place that the only way to win was to be voiceless. And I used to, I remember I would and it was making me sick just thinking about it. and I would literally start to get sick and I wasn't well anymore. And I was like, why are you? I have to take medicine to go to work. Like what's wrong that, you know, it's gotten to this place that, and I, and I used to like tear up sometimes thinking about like, what would my students think if they saw me now? And I've taught them all these good skills to be a good human. And now I'm doing the exact opposite just to, just to make it. And, you know, it was like, for what? So when I stopped working uh, my last corporate job, it came time to me to look for another one. And when I would look for another one, I would start to cry. I would get sick. I would get depressed. I just like my soul wouldn't let me go into another situation like that. And I wow. found that I was not good at playing dumb. I also had to realize that I had been living in a way that my ideas were only valid if a white man validated them for me. When I really, so all these stories I thought were great. I was getting like, I remember um, trying pitching a story. I had interviewed John Lewis a couple times in my museum um, uh, time by my stint. And I pitched a story of just talking about how John Lewis helped me so much as far as, you know, I read his book when I was in high school and it, you know, helped me to get a career. I wanted to be a historian. I wanted to like, you know, just do all the good trouble and all the things. And that's how, that's literally why I got a degree in history was after reading his book. I was going to go that path and be a history teacher. So I pitched this story and nobody thought it was relevant. Like nobody was like, we were looking for a story to honor John Lewis, like a personal story. And it's, you know, it's a whole bunch of white people. And I'm like, why did you have a real story of, you know, how he, you know, helped me and how I was like, you know, meeting him for the first time uh, was like, like my full circle. Like just, I mean, just such a pivotal point in my journey and nobody thought it was worth the, they went with some other story about like, when I heard John Lewis at a speech one time, like just like just one random like, <laughs> and I was like, what? And here you were coming with something rich and something personal. And it was like nothing. Like, so I, I'm, I had to start to think like, I'm not crazy. I, the amount of times I had to tell myself I wasn't crazy on a regular day. That's not healthy. <laughs> like I'm gonna start thinking I'm crazy. So it was. It was. Um. It just was. I couldn't do it. I emotionally, my soul wouldn't let me apply for a job, and I just started to think crazy. Like, what would you do if you had? To, what would you do if you couldn't fail? What are you really passionate about? What would you put the risk on yourself? 
what would that look like? And I still was on the fence. Um, and I went to, uh, I was chaperoning some kids uh, uh, for the United Negro College Fund. And we went from, uh, we, get, we went through a Bay Area tours of tech companies for them. So that was my first time hearing people like being in the tech industry. I had an idea for a VR company, but like, I, I don't have a tech background. I don't know what VR is. I've been a history teacher. I don't, I don't know any of these things. So I'm just like thinking like, wouldn't that be cool if, and of course everybody thinks I'm crazy because it's DC and nobody, you know, I, I don't have, it's not a regular tech company. It's a futuristic, like high tech tech company. And I'm just like, wouldn't that be cool if, and they're looking at me like, girl, you're crazy. So I went to the Bay chaperoning these kids and they, uh, it was my first time I heard everybody talking about solutions and not problems. And it was just like groundbreaking for me. I was like, you guys want to talk about ideas? <laughs> I was, it was like my whole brain like woke up and I was so excited. And when I told somebody um, about me wanting to start a company, uh, what I wanted to do, the first thing they said in response was I wasn't thinking big enough. What everybody in DC was telling me I was crazy. And I was telling myself, you're not crazy. You're not crazy. And then I got to the bay and they're like bigger, bigger. And I, and I was just, and then like, I feel like my brain opened. I couldn't close it. I came back to DC. I told myself I was moving to the bay and I was going to sell all my things to do it. And I was going to sponsor my own move, figure it out, have my runway. And like, that was it. And I didn't want to tell my friends because, um, you know, people will advise you out of love. And, uh, and sometimes their love is fearful because they care about you. So for me to say that, you know, I worked so hard um, getting a house in my 20s. I have like this, this beautiful four level, three bedroom, two bath house outside of DC, you know, like, and they're like, you're going to give up your house and, you know, your friends and your, your amazing job and like all these, you know, like, why would, you know, do it slower? Maybe you could do. And I was, you know, so I, I knew that, this is not my first crazy idea. I did, they were a lot smaller beforehand though. So I know what it feels like. Uh, for example, going to a museum from teaching, everybody advised me against that because they knew how hard it was to get a job in a museum. And everybody told me that it doesn't pay good money. I, and I, when I was teaching, I was making 50,000. When I left working at the museum, not only did I get a dream job working at the museum, I left making 100,000, double what I was teaching. And everybody right. told me not to ever do that. So I knew if that was crazy to them, there's no way I could tell them I'm about to like let it all go, you know, and like move across country. They're like, you know, the first have you ever been there? Yeah, once for like <laughs> I hadn't really been there. And I was like, but I just knew whatever it was, I didn't want to put my soul in another day in this rigid thinking and being and having to remind myself I wasn't crazy and being sick about thinking doing a job, all that outweighed the scariness. You know, so I was like, I'm just going to, I, I can't, I can't afford my health to ignore what my soul is telling me at this point. Also, right. when I, before I did this, I was starting to have health issues. Like I kind of mentioned it. My eye was twitching really bad. I was having really bad neck spasms that were going onto my arm. I couldn't move my head some days. It was just so much stress. And my doctor was telling me like, this is stress. My body was literally screaming at me like, you, you know, like you're going to, you know, this, this is what kills people. And my right. doctor told me that I had all the symptoms to have a palsy. I never knew that stress could make you have a palsy. And I could feel it all on half of my face. Like it was like, you know, my this eyes twitching, my necks, this arm, it was all my right half of my face. And my doctor was the one who called it. So literally it was like, do you keep doing this and become sick? 
or do you take a chance on yourself? And why should the decision be that hard in the first place? Your health, when your health is on the line. You know, so I didn't want to have to, so, you know, coming to that decision for myself was a big deal. I wasn't in the, I wasn't in the um, interest in having to make everybody else come to that decision with me. You know, I was like, I've already decided. That's it. So I waited for a really long time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> tell any of my, so I mean, I probably to like two or three of my close friends. Um, uh, but I actually, I, I remember texting a, a group of my like more casual friends and I, t- I did one text and I was like, yeah, so I'm um, going to move to California on Friday. So if you want to come and have drinks at so-and-so, we're going to have like, you know, just to, you know, goodbye type of thing. I didn't tell anybody until I was out. I just didn't want to hear it. And when you're doing that, you know, it's really important I have a quote that I always say that somebody told me from being in this field now. And uh, Mike McNair told me, never take advice with, from someone if you're not willing to trade places with them. Never take advice with, from someone if you're not willing to trade places with them. Gem drop. That just shut down Everything. a lot of advice. That, I was like, huh. And you start to realize that 95% of people have never taken a single step towards their dreams. Mm. So why are you listening to them? So to, to, to avoid any confrontations, any fights, any bad feelings, I don't have to tell them. I've already decided for myself and I'm going to do this. Uh, so I bought a one-way ticket. <laughs> Come on, Faith, just jump out there. I love and it. I the one-way ticket. There wasn't going back. You weren't going back. I sold my house, my car, everything I owned, like all my belongings, everything I, I own was like in two suitcases. Uh, put my books on the carry-on so I could have some books with me, and, you know, all my ancestral books to help me. Yeah. Come on, ancestors, fly with me. And I took a one-way flight and got here and was like, oh boy, (laughs) what the hell am I about to do right now? What did I do? That's how I got here. It was so important for me to have you go through the backstory, uh, your journey uh, to Kai XR, because I feel it's really important for one, uh, Black stories to be shared and told more often, especially in the tech space, um, as a Black woman, as a Black founder, uh, to help demystify uh, a lot of the unknowns concerning how do you get into tech and how can you become a founder, you know? And I think yours is such a, a wonderful Uh, story, and it's your story, right? This is your personal story, but there's so much that others can glean from it. Whether or not you want to go into tech or whether or not you want to be a founder, you just have so much uh, richness in who you are as a person and how you've grown. And I think a lot of what you have shared uh, will definitely resonate uh, with people and just life journey. Uh, as well as career journey. So uh, I would love for you to share, Kai, uh, what KaiXR is, what your company's about, um, and just excited about this ed tech space that you are in. Sure. Um, so my company, KaiXR, we are uh, the most accessible uh, and inclusive VR platform where kids can explore, dream, and create. 
What that means is the kids can come on our site. It's all web-based, no app needed. We work on any uh, any headset. Most VR companies only work on one or two headsets. We work on any headset and also any device. So we cater to non-immersive uh, 360 users. So usually you need a really expensive headset. Uh, we work on a tablet. You can still see 360 degrees, a smartphone, um, a laptop. Uh, whatever you have. And so we're meeting people where they are. And by also working on a smartphone, that means we work with a wi- with a, a cell phone signal, not Wi-Fi. So you can still access um, our offering. So we have our uh, VR field trips that kids can explore um, over 100 field trips from all over the world so they can see anything from Mecca to... Um, Tier Fletcher, who is an aerospace uh, engineer, uh, a black is and Tier, she's a beautiful black woman being a basically being a rocket scientist. So kids can see that at a young age. Um, I mean, we have just whatever you can think of uh, on our site. So just a discovery for kids. You know, what is it like to stand next to an elephant? What are elephants like? Um, you know, or you know, we just and we also film VR experiences. We create VR experiences too. So we curate and we uh, create them. So we just fi- finished filming. Um, at UC Berkeley, um, uh, we filmed CRISPR, uh, the uh, gene editing, uh, the DNA editing uh, scientific breakthrough. Uh, so we filmed that because it's woman in science. So we go. So what is it like to be a young girl and to see like Jennifer Doudna, like the scientist who is leading the charge to cure 89% of diseases due to uh, DNA editing? What does that mean for crops? Um, you know, like, you know, making them disease resistance to feed full communities. And what what are the downsides? It's it's plus, you know, critical thinking. What are the good things? What are the bad things? But putting it in front of them and so they can think about it. A lot of times we just didn't even have the information to have a thought or opinion about it. So what does it look like to have a very equitable way to provide education for people to know, you know, the world is bigger? than what we may be seeing in front of us. Um, so we have those VR field trips. And then it's really important for me to, for kids to go from being um, consumers of content to producers of content. Uh, so we have a maker space so kids can jump on and start making VR themselves. Uh, and that's a drag and drop platform. Um, so they don't have to know how to code. A lot of times, you know, kids, uh, working with kids so much, they may be like, oh, no, that coding's not for me. But they don't even know what it is. So the drag and drop lets them first kind of get an idea, you know, what is it like to make make that finished project? I kind of like making this end project now. What are the steps to getting there? Um, so just, you know, having them think through it backwards. Um, and then once they have that interest, they can go into different coding and make VR as well. So um, I like that we show kids uh new opportunities and maybe like VR is fun or it could just be VR is not for me. How did you make the decision that VR was the technology, the space that you wanted to get into? And like you said, you didn't have any clue about tech. This wasn't what you did. When did you make that realization that VR was the answer for what you were trying to deliver uh, for students? Um, yeah, I wish it was something more simple uh, than VR because <laughs> I don't have a tech background. Um, when I worked at the museums, I had seen VR a couple of times and it was administered through a smartphone. Um, and I thought that was really a great concept because a lot of my students that I used to work with in uh, the DC area, it was too expensive to get them the buses to come to the free museums. It was always an access issue. So I was like, oh, well, 
I've seen VR and I think VR could be a, a way to bring the museum to the kids. Uh, but everybody thought I was crazy because VR at that point in museums were just used to have deeper in-person uh, exhibitions. So maybe in my museum, for example, we had a Syria VR experience where you could see what it was like. Um, it was this VR experience called For My Son. And it was a Syrian refugee talking about what his hopes and dreams were for his son still. So it, was, it didn't focus too much on the conflict, but you know, like they're still people, they have dreams. Um, they're more than just a refugee, just in a really articulate, beautiful way um, and inspiring for like, just knowing that even though they're going through this, his son, is still going to go on to do great things, and that's his hope for his son. Um, and that was so. That was a VR experience that showed something else within the museum. My idea was let's do a museum VR experience and bring it outside to everybody else. And I thought it was just simple. I didn't know why that was like such a a big debate point. You know, I was like, they can't come, bring it to them. And I realized that that was like groundbreaking. Uh, I I see how I still don't think it's groundbreaking, but like people never thought of that option. Um, so that's how it started. I was like, I think this is a really easy way. You can use a cell phone. You can bring all this stuff to kids. I started off just filming museums. Uh, we filmed the Obama portraits really early um, with the help of Amy Sherrill, which is so happy about that. Um, but yeah, we, yeah, it was, it was, it was just simple. You know, a lot of these, what's frustrating for me now being in tech is that I feel like there's so many simple solutions that we see, but we just don't think it's a thing. Access to education and educational experiences should be simple, right? Especially for kids. Uh, You mentioned being frustrated. How do you channel that frustration as an entrepreneur? What, What advice do you give other entrepreneurs? What I tell a lot of um, entrepreneurs, and especially Black entrepreneurs, specifically Black entrepreneurs, is that entrepreneurship will make you, whether you want to or not, it will force you to examine all of your um, your being. I mean, it will test your gangster every day. Any insecurities you may have, any childhood trauma, it's going to come up and you're not even going to be able to be a good founder, a good leader until you really get on a path to healing. Because like this is going to test every bit of your soul. Like I tell people all the time, this ain't going to be easy. There's nothing. If it was, everybody would be doing it. That's right. So for this, it's, you know, it you have to figure out what makes you happy, what brings you joy, what brings you peace. You're going to have to go to that all the time when things get bad. You know, why are you doing this? I found the other day, um, when I first started my company, it was curated by Kai. And I thought that I was going to just have a website for diver- a website directory for diverse uh, museum exhibitions. So like, oh, did you know the Obama portraits are here and this Whitney Houston uh, premiere is happening and, and the museum and this is, how, this is all this stuff because people didn't know that, you know, these were these events and exhibitions inside these museums. So I thought that that was going to be it. I had this whole website built. And the other day I got an email that my website was going to expire from back then. I clicked on it and it was like my mission on why I started my company. And I hadn't seen that since like 2016, 2017. Um, So when all, when it gets tough and things get hard, you're going to have to look back deep in your soul to why you started this. What is your why when you are sometimes a white entrepreneur and you just want to like have, you know, a company that will make life easier. Cool. That's fun. But when you're doing like one of these deep seated companies that will like change communities, 
you got to know it's going to be tough. You have to know what your why is. Know your why. This has just been so, so good. Kai, where can people find out more about Kai XR and how can they get involved? Sure. You can visit us online at kaixr.com and we're on social media at Explore Kai XR. And I love to connect. Um, I would love to have people sign up for our subscription um, so you can explore VR field trips um, and, you know, tell us what you think. Uh, tell us what you want to see. Uh, we're always looking for VR experiences um, that, you know, really show the world. So if there's something that uh, you want to see next, let us know. And I love all the feedback. Yes, please make sure you check out all of the goodness that Kai is doing with her company. That's K-A-I-X-R dot com. And you'll be able to find all the social media links as well on the site. Remember, this is wrap session number one. I wasn't planning on making this a two-part, but there is just so much more to share. And I wanted to make sure uh, to break it up. So in the next session, um, we're going to be discussing her fundraising, uh, her seed round, and how she intentionally has made uh, more black and brown investors and women a part of her company. Um, And how her EdTech VR experience is so important, especially now during the COVID-19 pandemic. So look out for part two. Royal Court, it has been a pleasure. We've only just started. So thank you. Be well. Stay blessed. Peace. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Tech Rap Queen, be sure to visit thereenee.com. That's T-H-E-E Renee.com. Also, follow me on Instagram at the underscore underscore Renee.